thanks for letting us be here with you today. We're honored uh, to share this morning with you. Uh, we're especially loving the cool uh, fall New England weather. Uh, we come from uh, in Dakar, Senegal, and you're seeing some pictures here scrolling behind me, um, where October is uh, the hottest month of the year. Uh, although temperatures rarely exceed 100 degrees on the coast where we are in Dakar, um, the, the feel-like factor exceeds 110. Um, and the humidity and dew points are such that water actually just condenses on your skin while you're sitting there. Um, you're making it feel like you're sweating even when you're being inactive. Um, when you step out of the shower, you never quite really dry off um, this time of the year. Um, and of course, my hair gets all frizzy and messy and I, you know, it's just unmanageable. <laughs> it's awful. So, all that to say, we're soaking in the cool weather, enjoying it right now, and we're trying not to rub it into our colleagues uh, who are still back in Dakar. Um, now, before I share a little bit about our ministry in Dakar, um, let me just give you a brief history. Um, Pastor Rick told you a little bit about our past uh, history as far as uh, pastoring in Michigan for a while there, um, but it's been three years since we left the States, um, and, then le and then began our journey to, to Dakar. And during the transition time, Mount Hope was a big part in helping us get over that hump um, to get into the field. And we want to thank you for that. And you continue to sustain us and help us in our ministry. So we appreciate both the financial support and the, uh, and the prayer support that comes along with that. We spent our first 10 months uh, in, in France in language school and then departed for Senegal in June of 2012. Uh, as you see in the picture there, Senegal is a country in West Africa. It's about 12 million people that inhabit the country. We live in the capital city that was marked there called Dakar, right on the coast which is the westernmost part of the African continent. It's a city of about three and a half million people um, who live on top of each other uh, in this small little peninsula. Uh, most of the people, roughly 98% of them, are animists and Muslims. Um, and the Wolof, are the, as I just said, are the main people group in Senegal. There are about six million Wolof people in Senegal and less than what we know of, less than 200 believers among them. And since our mission did not have a presence in Senegal, we entered the country two years ago um, not knowing anyone uh, except for a couple people that we met on our survey trip in 2010. And God has blessed us. In the past two years, um, everyone on the team uh, learned to navigate a culture that is so different than the culture that we knew, navigate through multiple languages, uh, cultural barriers, and along with that, third world challenges. And I could go on and on with all the skills that the team had to quickly uh, acquire uh, just to survive. And the team not only learned these things and is still learning new things uh, as we journey, but God has blessed our team uh, with relationships among the Senegalese where none existed before. And I'm talking about significant relationships, either with neighbors, store and boutique owners, guards in the street, businessmen and women, um, artists, students, and more. But friendships that have been necessary to kind of to move us along, that we have needed either for our, just our own souls or needed as cultural guides and, uh, and with some of these friendships, we've had the opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, if you've been reading our newsletters, um, you know that in our first year, we had the opportunity to shake the hand of the president and meet the first lady of Senegal. Um, and as a result, serve alongside uh, the first lady's charity to help um, flood victims uh, that first summer that we were there in Dakar. We had the opportunity to come alongside other ministries and feed and provide um, help for medic and medical aid to street children. All these opportunities kind of blessed, up, blessed us and helped us acquire what was our first year goal, just to understand the culture and acquire as much of the language as possible. Now, very often during that first year, when we would meet someone new and they found out that we were American, 
they would want to learn English, and they would offer this, this deal. You teach me English, and I'll teach you either French or Wolof. Um, and it slowly became clear over that first year that an opportunity was opening for us. Within about a 10-minute drive from our, from our house is a large uh, public university. And by the way, as my family's coming in, I'll let you just turn around. and You can wave at them, sit up to stand up again. That's my wife, Corey. Um, and Blake is my 14-year-old son and my 11-year-old daughter, Abigail. I'm guessing our 10-year-old daughter decided to hang out with the uh, fifth graders in the back. All right. So, um, but within about a 10-minute drive of our home uh, is a public university of about 80,000-plus students. Most of the students are Senegalese, um, but the university all, also draws from other West African Francophone countries like Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Niger, um, Chad, and others, uh, also attend this university. So over this past year, we formed a partnership with two other missions in the development of an English center that is reaching out to university students. And here's our aim. Our aim is, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, to make disciples of Jesus among Muslim university students and professionals. We currently have about 150 students enrolled in our classes, some of which also attend our camps. So teaching English is a gift to these students. It helps them become more effective in their field of study. Um, we have students studying economics, finances, commercial trade, literature, education, medicine, social work, and, and various other uh, disciplines. And with English, these students um, have a better opportunity to find jobs when they graduate, since most of their fields will eventually put them in a situation where they need to engage with the English-speaking world. So at the same time, we have the opportunity to challenge these students' worldview and expose them to, the, to Jesus and his message, specifically about, about the kingdom of God. So in a moment, I want to show you a video of our most recent camp. The theme of this camp was heroes. And while teaching them English, we studied different, various heroes across the continent, like Harriet Tubman, Oscar Schindler, Malala, the young uh, Pakistani um, girl who's uh, championing uh, female education. And we watched the movie um, Hotel Rwanda and talked about the, 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 the hotel manager, Paul, and I'm going to try to say his last name. Um, and then we talked about Jesus. So here's a compilation in this video of some of the photos um, and footage from that camp.
that I meet here in the ERC are so, you know, so kind, so lovely. I never thought that these people, you know, coming from United States and today being here in Senegal can share together. Senegalese people love, because I learned from them, you know, love, respect also, also because they respect each other. Okay, so that gives you a sense of what we're doing in Senegal. Um, now, I've, even though I pastored for 17 years, I still have a bad sense of the clock. I'm going to stick to it um, to know what it is I want to say and how, what kind of time frame it fits in. So we're going to move along here, because I understand that you are in the middle of a focus on your, your global outreach and what that means for Mount Hope, what that means locally here for your mission work, and what that means for your work overseas. Um, and soon you'll be making decisions about where your global impact will be. You'll be making financial commitments, maybe forming new partnerships, celebrating old ones. But you're making, in essence, decisions about the impact of Mount Hope locally and beyond. So this morning I want to speak to that a little bit, beyond just talking to you about what we're doing in Senegal. Some of this message is a development of some things that God was stirring in my heart before we left the car. And some of it's coming from experiences and challenges and failures over these past three to four years. And then another part of it is coming from encounters, even recently, um, as I've been home, uh, stateside again. But I want to start uh, by reading from Matthew 14, uh, 22 uh, through 33, the story that most of us are very familiar with. It says, immediately Jesus, Jesus had spent the day teaching. He was with his disciples, and he sends them out in the boat. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dis dismissed them... He went up on a mountainside to pray, and when evening came, he was all alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, four years ago, 
when our team was doing some training with our mission, one of the pre presenters did a session that was called Opportunities in Disguise. And he talked about the role of faith and failure in ministry. And I was pretty intrigued by the, by the teaching and later posted it on our team's uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, a quote that I heard that hour. And the quote was this, If I'm not failing, am I risking enough? If I'm not failing enough, am I walking by faith or by sight? Now, the quote started stirring up some comments and questions that I didn't expect. Um, most who commented weren't, were not very intrigued, as, or were not as intrigued by the statement, at least, as I was. Um, some wondered if it was misquoted or if it was simply taken out of context. Others posted questions like, how do you know when you've failed enough? Um, or is he saying God wants us to fail? In essence, this presenter was linking faith and failure directly to each other. Now, there are all kinds of failures that we can talk about, from competency, competency failures to performance failures, failures caused by mistakes or circumstances. And, of course, there's moral failures or failures of integrity in our lives. But we can't talk about failure without also talking about fear. Those are also wrapped into each other. In fact, I would say that faith, fear, risk, and failure are all intimately tied together. And that is why the story of Peter is such a powerful one. Here it is sometime in the afternoon. Jesus' friends are all in the boat. At this point, it's still daylight. The body of water that they had to go across is not that large, maybe four and a half miles across. Many of the guys in the boat were professionals. They were pros at this. They'd been around boats their entire lives. So you have to imagine and just paint this picture in your mind, a storm so fierce that they couldn't make any headway in the water. A bunch of professionals couldn't even move it along. Jesus comes to them sometime in the early morning, maybe sometime after 3 a.m. is a sense that we get, and they hadn't yet made it across. So there's still, hours later, on just a four and a half mile uh, lake, somewhere in the middle there, being buffeted by the waves. So pictured in your mind the size of these waves, the strength of the wind, the darkness of the night. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat at a time when they didn't probably have, you know, the flashlight, you know, the torches on their side. You know, it would, it would, just imagine that kind of a darkness here. And the boat's struggling to avoid being capsized, and here it is being battered by the waves. They're cold, they're wet, they're exhausted, they're terrified. And for seasoned fishermen to be terrified, as the scripture says here, you know those are some pretty big waves. Right? These are the conditions, in essence, that Peter is about to step out of the boat and walk on the water. It's tough enough to walk on the water when it's calm. I don't know if you've ever tried it before. Um, <laughs> but imagine trying to do it you know, when the waves are, are large, the wind's like a hurricane, and it's 3 o'clock and dark. All right, 3 o'clock in the morning and dark. Peter gets out of the boat. He walks a few steps, and then he falls. He doesn't make it. So Mount Hope, one of the things I want you to think about this morning is where is Jesus inviting you to take a step of faith? Particularly as you step out into this global outreach, as you step out into what uh, I just hearing about Belmont. I think I'm saying it right because I don't know the geography around here all that well. Um, as you're step, stepping out into uh, another campus extension here, what is, where is he inviting you as an individual and you as a church to get out of the boat? Where is he inviting you to walk on the water? Where is he inviting you to do something that in no way you could accomplish on your own? It's an invitation to t of, of faith, but it's also an invitation to take a huge risk. It's an invitation that may not end in success. It's an invitation that's going to require a miracle. An invitation to trust him in the middle of all the fear 
that surrounds taking that big risk, whatever it might be that's holding you back from stepping out. In this story, Jesus comes to his disciples, and the writer says they're all afraid. And Jesus says what God says to people over and over and over and over again, all throughout the scriptures, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's I. He's basically saying, you know me. You know who I am. You know my competencies. You know the character of, who, who, of my being. You know me. Don't be afraid. So see, the risk that we're talking about taking here is not just some foolish um, act of, of uh, uh, you know, Rick, uh, Pastor Rick, you talk about child, you know, childhood, how we might not grow up. It's not just some foolish thing you do, um, you know, as we used to unscrew the front wheel of our bike and pull a wheelie. You know, that's just plain foolishness. And you land on the forks of your bike. We're not talking about those kind of foolish risks. We're talking about something that's based in the character and competency of, competency of our creator, not something just for an adrenaline rush. We're talking about putting your trust in the character of someone who's proven that they can be trusted. And you're being personally invited into that. That's the kind of risk that Mount Hope is being invited into. And when Jesus calls someone, he always gives them power to fulfill that call. Now we need to realize, because since there's no promise of success in this, that failure is an option or a possibility at the very least, right? We have to realize that there's bigger stories going on than the story that we're personally involved in. In the end, God always wins. But often there's this sub-story of conflict, suffering, defeat, and sometimes even failure. Even in the battles that are won, we know people die. All right, and there's a sub-story of failure even in the victory. Our lives are interconnected into a broader story. And so even failure itself can gain both meaning and victory. And when Peter realizes this, he basically says, what do you want me to do? He realizes that Jesus is out there, what do you want me to do? Tell me. Tell me. And the translation reads here, command me. And Jesus says, come. Now, I often wonder what I would have done in that moment here. Would I have been seized by fear? Would I have froze? Would I have been like the other 11 who are still in the boat, not stepping out? Where would I have been in this whole command to come? And what's more astonishing about, the, about Jesus himself walking on the water is the fact that Peter actually sets himself up here because he invites Jesus to give him this challenge. He says, tell, if it's you, then say something to me. Command me. Tell me to do something. Instead of us being like, oh, it is you, Jesus. Cool. Can you stop these waves? Can you get in the boat and help us out here? Can you help us get across? He just says, talk to me. Tell me something. Command me. Tell me what to do. And Jesus says, come. He, Peter puts himself in a position where he can experience a miracle. He says, command me. Tell me what to do. And here's the thing I noticed in this passage. It's, it's important to see that Peter, before stepping out of the boat, doesn't ask Jesus, however, for a promise. He doesn't say, if I come, promise that I will not fail. It's, there, there's never a promise anywhere in the story here. Never a promise. All he's giving here is an opportunity. No guarantees. Just an opportunity. And I fear there's a trend right now among some in the church where success is glorified and, and this is the piece that I'm kind of saying I'm, I'm seeing coming back home. Where success is glorified more than faithfulness. And where decisions are being made based on the ratio of risk versus success rather than being based on faith and obedience. When we were pulling a team together for Senegal, we had an influential board member leave our church because he didn't want to feel responsible as a member or donor if something happened to our families. 
in essence, if we sunk, if we failed, if we were harmed in some way, he didn't want to bear any responsibility to that. At the same time, there was this movie that had just been released called End of the Spear that was about the story of the five missionaries in Ecuador. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story in the 1950s. And this person made the comment that if there had been maybe better planning and preparation, those five missionaries didn't have to die. And all I could think was, all right, isn't Jesus the one who laid down his life the example that we're supposed to have? Where risk, suffering was all wrapped up in his life. When I was pastor, I enjoyed going to conferences and learning from them and getting inspired. They're worthwhile and important endeavors. But oftentimes, you'd come back from these because the success stories were what, was, what were trumpeted all the time, and you would come back feeling like, I don't match up. I can't speak like that person. I can't lead like that person. Has anyone heard of the epic, and I, this is where, you know, when you come back after being gone three years, you don't know if everybody's talking about this or you've never heard this. But have anybody heard of the epic fail pastor's conference? Just raise your hand real quick if you've heard of that. Okay. There, there, my, my wife sent me an article a few months, soon after we landed here in the States, um, about this epic fail pastor's conference. And there's this pastor that talks about how he realized that most of ministry conferences around the world were oriented for and run by professional, successful pastors at successful churches. He found himself leaving these conferences feeling guilty that he wasn't doing church the right way or like he couldn't relate to the speakers or the, or the people up front. Uh, and he began to wonder if what pastors were doing, whether we knew it or not, was worshiping at the altar of our American-defined ideal of success only now in the local church setting. So he decided to write a satirical blog post suggesting that someone host an epic fail pastor's conference where we put our worst foot forward. He wrote that instead of talking about our successes, the speakers should talk wholly about their failures and to follow up, share how God somehow showed up in the midst of that. He suggested, he suggested no pastor that comes to this should be, able, should be pastoring a church over 200 people, that the speakers should be called experts on failures. There will be no green room, no lanyards, um, no merchandise tables, no honorariums, and the event would then end with communion. So he posted this. Ironically, the idea took off. People contacted him from all over the country asking when and where <laughs> is such an event going to happen. The conferences are happening around the country right now, and basically all they become is sacred spaces not to celebrate failure, but sacred spaces where we can express our failures and find God's grace in the midst of that. One thing he says that we need to develop a theology of failure. Yeah, he wrote a book now, it's called Fail, Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure. I don't know if the book has failed or if he sold a lot, I really have no idea. But I couldn't agree with him more that we need to develop a theology of failure. Peter takes this huge risk to get out of the boat, and he's actually an amazing success, and he walks on the water until fear takes over. And he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks, and he fails. Now, I, something just recently as I was considering this story caught me. Over the years, I've often thought about the end of Jesus' ministry, the two people who made some of the um, what we call largest failures uh, among the disciples, and we got Judas, and we got Peter. And I've always wondered about Judas. He, I mean, he, he trades in Christ for 30 pieces of silver, experiences deep regret over his failure, throws the silver back, and then kills himself, commits suicide. 
And I've always wondered, what if he had seen a different part of Jesus? His story didn't have to end that way. What made the difference between Peter and Judas? Because Peter's failure is, I mean, maybe you can argue with on this, but I would argue just as bad. I mean, he denies Jesus three times after being told he's going to do it. He goes ahead and does it. There's, you know, as you read those passages, they're pretty gripping, where Peter, where it's a period of time that passes. It's like an hour passes after one denial and another denial. He's got opportunity to turn course, and he doesn't. And then that last one, when you read it, particularly in the book of Luke, the last one, he calls down curses on himself, and then he makes an oath, I don't know the man. The rooster crows, and they also, the part in Luke that always grabs me is it says that Jesus looked. He makes eye contact with Peter. Could you imagine how crushing that would be? And, and I'm sure it wasn't a, watch it. I'm sure, you know, that's not the Jesus we know. I'm sure it was an angry look. It was probably just a heartbroken look. Maybe a little bit of a, I told you you're weak, you know? Maybe it was even that look of, hey, don't, don't let it all hang on this. Don't let this define who you are. I had read somewhere that if people, and that this is tradition, I don't know if it's true or not, but at, in Peter's ministry, if somebody wanted to, mock Peter or get at his heart or hurt him in some way during his ministry, that in the crowd somebody would, would, would crow like a rooster just to remind him of his denial. I'm sure it was a heartbreaking moment. But why didn't Peter go and kill himself? Why didn't he make that step? He wept bitterly, it says. The only thing I can think of is that he had an already experienced the rescuing hand of Jesus. He had already in his, and I don't know what Jude, we don't see much of Judas' story, but he, I don't think he understood Jesus as a rescuer. And so all he saw in the end after his betrayal was only one option. I need to end it. Regret and the shame took over in such a way that he killed himself. But Peter already experienced when he stepped out of faith the rescuing hand of Jesus and even in that moment in this time here where he's feeling all the shame and hurt of his denial he sees that Jesus can still provide a way out and it was no later in the story when Jesus returns he restores Peter back to where he is I'm going to end <laughs> with uh, a quote um but I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm kind of missing the story because I just don't have time to tell it to you. But the, I'm going to give you the quote here, and I want this to be the prayer that you guys say as uh, for your for your own um, people. But I had a pastor friend of mine email me after a tragic event that we experienced in Dakar, one that left me uh, and our family um, a bit unfounded and and uh, uncomfortable, and in a, in a retreat kind of fear moment. Um, and, uh, and this is the response that uh, this pastor friend of mine gave to me when I reached out to him, um, saying, hey, you've pastored in some of the uh, darkest areas of Detroit. He was a pastor in Detroit for 30 years and now is a pastor in New York. Um, and uh, he replied with a way of, uh, in essence, it was one, for me, it was that reaching hand of Jesus that pulled me out um, of the water. And he says this, when I think of you and your family, I think of the quote from Philip Brooks, the great Boston preacher. He said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. 
Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. Every day you shall wonder at yourself, at the riches of life, which has come to you by the grace of God. And he just says, we'll be praying for you um, at our church this weekend here. And that's the prayer that I feel as you guys look at your, global, your impact, locally and globally beyond, that you should be praying. Don't pray for it to be easy. Be okay with failure around that. Don't wrap yourself in expectation that is not the burden that God wants you to carry. Don't wrap those expectations around your pastor beyond what you're supposed to be as a body carrying. Pray not for easy lives. Pray to be stronger people. Pray for tasks that are equal to the powers that God gives you and pray for powers equal to your tasks. And you will be given the grace of God in the midst of that. So in the coming week, as Mount Hope makes pledges and commitments locally and beyond, I encourage you to pray that same thing. Don't pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger. For some of you individually, it might involve a new attempt in some ministry here at the church. And God's leading in ways that he's never done before. You might be nervous about it, and you may fail. Some of you here are called to pray. Maybe it's over something that's been very painful, a relationship or an episode in your life. You're nervous about that because you don't know if this prayer is going to be answered, and you're afraid that if you lean into this, you may fail. For some, the call is to enter into a new level of community here within the body, to reach a new level of vulnerability, maybe with a friend or a group of people, some openness and honesty in your life um, that you've been guarding or shielding in your life for far too long. And the challenge for you is to risk a little more. For some of you, it might involve other areas like changing your job, going to school, getting a new depth, going to a new depth in a, in a relationship. Maybe it's a confrontation that you need to have with a friend or coworker. You're holding back because you're haunted by the question, where's the guarantee if I step out here? How do I know that I'm not going to fail in this? The answer is you don't. You might not. You might fail. So develop in your life a theology of failure, one that has the grace of God wrapped in it, where his rescuing hand can come down, you, come down to you. Because when you fail, remember the grace of God. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. Every day you shall wonder at yourself and at the riches of life which has come to you by the grace of God. Amen. ask our music ministry they can make their way up um i know rick i thank you for being respectful of the time and the clock but i kind of wish you had shared that story i'm i'm tempted to bring you up to share it uh would, would you would you do that because i know the story and i think i've shared it with some of you in the past and and you just need to hear this to, to get that quote in context and understand the things that god does call us through and, uh, and the things that your missionaries, your global partners, are sometimes facing in the field where you don't have to get a word for it, man. Just <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say, uh, Can you turn them on? Oh, yeah. I muted myself. Yeah, yeah, I did the wrong thing and touched the... Uh, uh, I want to share more of the response than to the story. But in that, the, the quick on the story was we were walking the streets of two months of landing in Dakar. Um, and uh, our whole family was coming back from a meal one evening. And we were, uh, I was walking in front of my wife. Uh, with our oldest, who would have been at that time, it would have been two years ago, 12, and, uh, and then Abby would have been nine. And then 
uh, about 15 feet behind me was my wife um, with our youngest, Emmy, it would have been eight at the time. And uh, someone crossed the other direction, we didn't really take notice of it, but basically he began to steal um, my wife's purse. I didn't know that, but when I turn around to go make a comment to her on something, I see this happening and begin to run toward her, um, at which point a long machete comes out and cuts, um, cuts her hand to release the purse um, from her hand. And, uh, and at the same time, I remember just glancing over uh, to see that her hand had been cut, uh, and, but I was still in pursuit of the thief and turned then to pursue when I realized he wasn't running because he was there now over me with the machete. He was about a six foot five guy with machete and gave me a blow to the back. I fell to the ground thinking that I was uh, sliced open. Um, but when I saw a breath in me, I remember just pushing up and uh, um, yelling for help as I began to pursue the guy who then jumped on the back of a moped, and, um, and which was accomplice at the time. Um, because, of, because of the commotion, the crowd uh, came around us. We began to explain what happened, um, showing the severed finger of my wife to the, to the Senegalese that were around us, probably about 30 or so people. Um, and, then, uh, and then I pulled my shirt off to show them all the blood on my back, and there was not a lick of blood. Um, and there was a welt in the shape of the machete. Um, and so we, we believe God had really protected us during that time. Um, so the next few days, we walked the team through just the, the, our family, through, the, through this, this stuff. The kids at the, at the point were wailing when that happened. And um, we stopped among the crowd just to pray, um, not knowing what else to do. Um, and the uh, next couple of days were just a bit of, uh, you know, the, just the managing the, the chaos, I guess you could say, in terms of our family, people back home, and, and all that. It wasn't until a few days later that I felt the weight of it hit me, which, which was just the darkness. Um, and it, I, I noticed it when a taxi would not give me, you'd barter for a taxi every time you, uh, every time, every time you go uh, somewhere, and a taxi wouldn't give me the price that I thought was legitimate for, not for a Senegalese person, but for a, a white person. Um, which, uh, so when he pulled away, I remember hitting the back of the taxi and yelling at him. And then I remember thinking, hang on a second, I'm a missionary. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was realizing that anger and all this stuff was welling up within me, and that's when I reached out to this pastor friend of mine who had been a pastor, in was a mentor of mine uh, in my early development, um, was a pastor in Detroit for 30 years, and now pastors in, uh, in um, New York City. And I just basically said, you've loved in some extremely tough places. Is there any advice that you can give me? He says, Rick, thank God you and the family are okay. There's a time for every man of God that danger seems to be in the building process of a man's character and ministry. I've seen those machete moments in Detroit over the last 30 years, both physical danger and spiritual. You're in the right place. Sometimes the best confirmations of, God's, of God are satanic attacks. Satan would never attack someone who is not in the will of God. The intensity of this attack should reveal you are in the center of God's will. And that's why I was attaching to the message that this Failures and struggles are going to come along. I think of Ravi Zacharias' words on Jesus hanging on the cross. While hanging on the cross, Jesus says, My father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? Ravi said the moment Jesus felt furthest from God is the moment he is in the center of God's will, redeeming the planet back to the Father. Moments of question and feeling alienated are usually moments from God that you are in the center of God's will. This is also a time that solidifies your calling publicly to the people that you minister to. It may not happen in the hearing of your ear, but throughout the community, people are talking. If you're not there for God, then you'll leave to protect your lives. But because you are there, it will not be directed by evil men's intentions. You are spreading good rumors by your resolve. This is one of those key moments that people in Dakar will know you are for real. Don't run, move, leave, or be fearful. You just established the first part of your calling to these people. 
since there are no documents or diplomas that can give you what that machete moment just gave you. I'm convinced this is a God moment, though I cringe to hear your story, and especially with your little ones involved. Something rejoiced in me to know that this was God's intention to test you, protect you, and to establish you. Practically, especially with your children, he's talking about praying for now the, 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 the man. He says, finally, always remember, God will never lead by fear. This is not his language. He's a father, and he guides by peace in his word, but not fear. It is not a language God uses to move you or to direct you. So when fear comes, realize you cannot make any decisions by the fear in your soul. Some may call it using common sense, but it's nothing but a ploy of the enemy to make you do things based on fear and not the word of God. Walk by faith. And that's when the end goes on. When I think of you and your family, I think of the quote from Philip Brooks, the great Boston preacher. We'll be praying for you at Brooklyn Tabernacle. And then he ends the, uh, the letter. So that's the, um, the end piece of it. I pray that you guys will do big things. There will be big failures also. And I pray in the midst of that, you guys will find the grace of God.